I believe that what we want more than anything is to know that our life matters. We want to feel seen and heard and to know that we belong and have a purpose. I've seen this in CEOs, teachers, convicts, parents, students, our senior population, and everyone else I've met along my journey of understanding why my life matters. I started this podcast to create a space for us to come together, to be human, to grow, to share, to be real, and explore this thing called life. I wanted to have conversations with people to better understand the moments that shaped them and to celebrate their story, knowing we would all be better off for it. I'm so happy you were here to join us in the middle. For when we step out into the middle, we create moments that change us forever. Hopefully this will be one of those moments for you. Hey listeners, I'm so excited about this next conversation I got to have with Kirsten Powers. Uh, you might know her from national television, whether it was Fox or CNN, or read her uh, columns in newspapers all across the country. Um, when it comes to the middle, there's no one that I've met that has put herself right in the middle more than Kirsten Powers. And we've been told our whole lives not to talk about politics or religion, and that's what she's done for a living. So enjoy this conversation about the power of grace, because I really do believe it's what our world needs more than anything today. Kirsten, it's so good to have you on my podcast. Uh, how are you? Here, I'm fantastic. As good as you um, can be when you're promoting a book. <laughs> <laughs> right, exhausted and fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't there this weird thing of like, okay, this self-promotion thing is starting to feel Horrible. a little bit awkward? It's so awkward. And I'm just not, I don't, I did not get that gene. So I just not how I think. And so fortunately I have some friends who do think that way. And so they're like, you need to do this or that, or I, cause I just don't, I don't know. It's not, I just don't have it. So I, I'm the same way. It's so yeah. it's such a struggle for me. And, and sometimes I'm okay with that. And sometimes like, no, I just got to get better at it. But for some reason, promoting myself, I can promote you all day and it feels great. Oh, no, no. I love helping other people. I think with this, it's a little bit easier because the book is such a labor of love. Mm. And so I do feel like I'm, you know, I am promoting myself and promoting the book, but it's also like, I think this book is important and I think it's an important conversation. And so that makes it a little easier, but I think it's just more that I don't know how to do it. That's my right. point. It's like, I don't know. It's like, I forget that I'm friends with people that can help that kind of stuff. So I have like our friend, Jonathan will be like, no, 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 you need to, cause he's so good at that kind of stuff. He has such great skill for it. And so he'll be like, no, but what about this person and that person? I'm like, oh yeah. Like they have a podcast. I forgot about that. You know? So yeah, it's. Well, the truth is what it's, what it says to me is like, you're just so invested in the depth of their relationships. Yes. For, for, for yeah, I don't want to like do anything. Yeah. I do always say I would love to be on, but if you can't do it, it's not a problem, which exactly. you probably shouldn't say. <laughs> but. So for, for our listeners, uh, this book we're talking about, um, Kirsten has written a new book and it comes out November 2nd. Um, and it's called Saving Grace uh, and with a log tagline that I'm not going to read right now. But I will tell you, um, I got an advanced copy of the book. And I, as I shared with Kirsten, it's been a long time that I, since I've sat down and read a book from front to back in one sitting. And I actually did this two days ago with Kirsten's book and, and Kirsten, it's so incredible. Um, oh, that means so much to me. It, it gives really me, does. it gives me, it gives me a lot of hope. I think is, is the one thing I walked away with it uh, from it with. And That's you know, what's, what, what's interesting for me, you know, we're all taught in life, like, um, the two topics to always avoid talking about, you know, our religion and politics, Yeah, you know, and here you are, this brave soul, this beautiful woman, and you spent your whole life there. Exactly. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just means so much to me because when, you know, you've written books before, it's very vulnerable. Mm. You put something out in the world and you really don't know, like, how is this going to be handled, received? And I, this is even more vulnerable for me because there's a lot of me in the book, which I don't normally do. And I've started to do it a little bit with my columns, but it's not the norm. And so I reveal a lot about myself and my own struggles. And so it's extra vulnerable. Right. And it's one yeah. of those things where I did have a moment of, was this a good idea? I don't know. Right. It's <laughs> right. Like after you do it, it's, it's very, very vulnerable. Well, which I think is interesting because, in some ways you're kind of known. So when you're on CNN, 
you know, every, every night, every other night, it seems like all the time, uh, you're kind of known to be this kind of strong, I don't want to say steely in a bad way. Right. But, no, but I think that's right. Analytical, analytical, um, but very grounded and very kind of, you know, at peace inside. Mm. Um, mm. But what, but one of the things I learned from this book was that that's not always been the case for you. Yeah, there's definitely been a disconnect between my exterior and my interior. I'd say now it's very connected. But I talk a lot about in the book, actually, about trauma. Mm -hmm. Because when I was trying to figure out how do you have more grace for people, I wanted to be very practical for people. Because a lot of times, grace is sort of a religious idea, right? We'll think. And so if you're in the Christian world, you might think, well, I'll pray a lot and I'll do all these spiritual practices and spoiler alert, I've done it all. And <laughs> like that didn't get me there. And so I really came to the conclusion that I needed to deal with some of my issues because I had moved into a space of having so much contempt and so much rage towards people who I felt were doing bad things. And some people would argue are doing bad things. But it wasn't a sustainable way for me to live. And it's not really a sustainable way for anybody to live. And I kept hearing from people really post-16, I just can't live like this anymore. And so right. what I discovered was that a lot of that, what you would see were, especially when I was at Fox, where I would get in these very contentious back and forth, or even post-2016 with some of the Trump supporters, you would see these, you know, pretty contentious uh, right. exchanges where I would be very calm and very clear, but inside mm. I was just filled with contempt. And so one of the points I make is grace is not about external behavior. You, if you, if you sort of practice grace, your external behavior will probably start to match that you will seem more grounded. You will, or you actually will be more grounded and you will interact with people uh, in a more grounded way. But my particular flavor of trauma caused me, I have a sort of flight uh, right. response. And so it, it helps me stay. It makes it seem like I'm very calm when I'm actually not. I'm kind of disassociated, honestly. And so I would say I was, I don't think I'm that way now, but right. I was that way. And I can sort of look back on it and see that my particular flavor of trauma actually benefited me professionally. That's so um, interesting. It was very harmful to me personally because right. I still am experiencing that whether I'm conscious of it or not. Right. So I'm still in a toxic environment when I'm arguing with Bill O'Reilly and these crazy arguments, but because I stayed so calm, I'd be like, Oh, I'm fine. It's not bothering me. But in mm -hmm. hindsight, it was bothering me and you it was not a good environment for me. You quote a therapist in the book. Um, and it's something to the effect of like, you can't, you can't beat the monster by becoming one. You know, yeah, that's yourself. a Nietzsche, Nietzsche quote. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And my, uh, yeah. And one of the therapists that I interview always says that uh, you have to be careful that in the process of fighting the monster that you don't become the monster. And unfortunately that does happen to some people. And we see that a lot in social media where mm. people spend so much time on social media. And there's also all the psychology around how we behave differently when we're in a crowd. And yep. so we do behave differently when we, and I'm, and I'm one of those people uh, that when you get into the dynamic of an online kind of pile on or outrage, yep. you will do things that in the calm of day and you look back on it, you would, you'll think, what was I doing? Um, I'm a grown up, and I'm acting like a teenager, right? Absolutely. Snarky, sarcastic, just things that are not really not okay, but, but we will do that. And we will in the process become exactly what we say we oppose. Right. And Absolutely. so, yeah. And so that was one of my big discoveries was one of the first things I did, which I write about is I got off social media mm. and uh, it gave me a perspective to really kind of look back and, and see things a little more clearly because when you're getting on that every day and you're getting that dopamine hit and you're kind of just flooding your system yep. uh, and then you get rewarded for it, uh, it doesn't it really, I just don't know how anybody can actually practice grace and spend a lot of time on Twitter. I, I just, they're, they're better people than me if they can do it. That's all I <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so another thing too that I really, so I love, um, I love Wayne Dyer. 
And mm-hmm. I love, I loved reading a lot of his books and I was reflecting on why I, I loved him so much. Um, and I think he always, he always brought to his approach was always like multifaceted. So, um, and when I was in college, I was a communications major because it was, it was considered like the, the multifaceted major. I could take sociology classes, psychology classes, like all these different sorts of classes. And with Wayne Dyer, he brings science and he brings, you know, brain chemistry. He brings spirituality. He brings fit, but all these different approaches. And, and your book does that as well. And that was one of the things there was a level of awareness that I gained yeah. from reading the book because, you know, you talk about things like rhetorical framing and the paradox of information age and confirmation bias and intellectual humility and a lot of these terms that are out there and they're well studied. I mean, the studies you reference are incredible. And a lot of the stuff we don't even realize we're doing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, you really have to understand and I, and I do my best to tease this out in the book, how our brains work against us. Right. That we are designed, our brains are not designed for what we're living in right now. They're designed to keep us safe. And what safety used to mean was safety from a tiger chasing you or safety from another tribe that looks different. Right. And so where you have to make really split second decisions because your actual physical safety is in danger. And so we make very split second decisions and we think we're having intuition or we think we're seeing things clearly or being discerning when in fact, you know, we're often, it's the confirmation bias. We're just seeing what we already believe, which is a very common thing that happens. You only see the information that that you already believe and you really can't see anything else. And, And I had an experience when I went back, one of the things I did for this book was after I got some distance from social media, after I did a lot of therapy, I went back and I looked at my work over the last more than a decade. Right. And I would look at it and I would think, how did I not see Mm. what I didn't see? Right. That I can see now, but I staked out this position that I no longer agree with. And that frankly, I should have seen that there were things that undermined this position, but I can tell you, I did so much research. I did so much research and I, and I thought I was looking at everything but I was only seeing what confirmed what I already thought. So, and so we have that. And then if you have unintegrated trauma, which frankly, most people do, yes, it's different levels, but it's not, it it, it could be something very small or it could be something massive. It's, uh, but if we have anything that's unintegrated, then that makes us be much more binary and stark in the way that we see things because we, that's what keeps us psychologically safe. So we're also always trying to keep, our, keep ourselves psychologically safe. And, and, that's, and that's what the fight, flight, freeze mechanism does. It's, a, it's whatever we think is going to keep us safe in that circumstance. So if you have the fight response, you need to be aware of that. Right. You need to be aware that every fight you have maybe isn't necessary. Uh, you know, if you have the flight response where you disassociate, you need to be aware of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, some people freeze that they feel like fighting or fleeing isn't safe. And so they just freeze. And someone might look at a person like that and go, oh, they're so graceful because they never argue with anybody. It's like, no, they're terrified. <laughs> right. Um, yes. So it's so really understanding all these these things about, um, again, our brain works against us having intellectual humility because we do always see what we believe. And and so considering the possibility and I do this all the time now, what am I not seeing? What do I not know? I am going to assume there's something I'm not seeing here. And right. to really make an effort to try and understand it from a different perspective, uh, because it's inevitable that we are going to think that we have single, singularly found the truth, because we're also, we always surround ourselves with people who think just like us. Another and dynamic, so it's, right? It's very easy to just think you have you're the one who has figured everything out. Um, when the chances of that are actually pretty low. Pretty low, right? And that the way our brain works, it just fits so perfectly into this into this um, dualistic world, or this you know, I'm either red or I'm blue. Yep. You're either right or wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It, it all feeds. Yes. And it feeds our sense of social superiority, which we also have a real need to feel that we, and to be connected with our tribe and all of those things. Um, I think it's important to say that 
none of this means that you shouldn't be angry or that you shouldn't be outraged. I always say you never lose your capacity for capacity for outrage. There's, there's just a difference, a sort of grace infused outrage looks very different than maybe what we see a typical sort of online outrage type of thing that happens. And it's, it's something that just, you're upset and you're angry and it activates you to do something positive. Right. It doesn't activate you to destroy another person's life. And, and it, it, it activates you to seek accountability, but not annihilation. So some people will say when they talk about cancel culture, well, you're just destroying people's lives for no reason. It's like, no, that's sometimes people have to be held accountable. Sometimes people actually have done something and they need to be held accountable. And that's going to mean maybe losing their job. Right. And that's, but we also have to understand that that is a serious consequence. Sometimes I hear people saying, oh, whatever, they lost their job, they'll find another. No, no, that's not. That's not how it is. Losing your job is a big deal. Sometimes it's necessary, right? Sometimes somebody actually has done something where that is the necessary consequence, but we need to be realistic that this is a serious consequence and that, uh, and then ideally we should create a situation where that person can be held accountable, but also repent seek repair, all these things. And I have an entire chapter on that of how do you repent and repair? Because we don't have good models for that. We have people who do these kind of half-assed apologies, right? Right. Or workshop apologies by the PR person. But how do you actually, if you're sincerely sorry, how do you actually repent in a way that, that, that can create wholeness where you cause damage? And how do you create a culture that will receive that? That's right. That's right. I mean, even down to our criminal justice system, you can see how we're not, we're not good at that that work. Um, and one of the things too, that you talk about with the cancel culture part, which I really loved was, um, for the most part where there's moments where people call out cancel culture, what they're missing is that the people who are asking for something to change have felt canceled their entire life, right. For generations, for hundreds of years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that my view of cancel culture is a very both and Mm-hmm. view. Uh, so it's not binary. It's that cancel culture exists for a reason. And it's what you just said to the extent that it even ex- exists. That term right. means so many things, just so many different people. I even hesitate to use it, but just I because agree. that's the term that people use, but it, 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 it's, it happens because people have been ignored for so long. And right. when you ignore people for too long, and we all know this in our own relationships, if your spouse keeps talking to you about something over and over and over, and you just keep ignoring them and ignoring them, ignoring them, at some point they're going to flip out on you. <laughs> and th- that's just what happens. And so sometimes it does feel disproportionate to people, but it's not. Right. And, and then people will say, well, they should have more grace. That person didn't know they weren't supposed to say that word or that they weren't supposed to do that. And it's like, that's all they do is give people grace. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't be able to live in the society Women would not be able to live in this society without giving grace for all the people who've sexually harassed them and discriminated against them. Black people would not be able to live in this society and without giving grace to white people for all the horrific things that have happened and continue to happen. So stop asking them for grace and start realizing that you've, we've gotten a ton of grace. And, and so I think that we have to be realistic about why this is happening. And if you don't like it, then deal with the issues that people are complaining about. Right. At the same time, my and part of it is sometimes it spirals out of control. And sometimes a a person who did one thing gets their life destroyed. Right. That's right. And, And a lot of that is because maybe an individual person who's on Twitter doesn't want that person's life to be destroyed. But just when you have to know that when you start that tweet going after a person that it very well will end up in with them losing their job, losing their reputation, losing their health care. You don't know, is there, do they have a kid who has cancer? We have no idea, right? What's, what's going to happen to this person. So be realistic about the repercussions of this. And is that the best way to deal with this issue? I, I, I talk in the book about, uh, I quote a professor from Smith, Loretta Ross, who talks about calling in people. So the yeah, first thing you that. should do is, is, Rather than going, tweeting out the thing the person did and telling them to do better or calling them a name or whatever, 
reach out to them directly and say, hey, I think this is really problematic. And um, maybe you should delete this tweet or maybe you should apologize for this thing that you did. Like, like give them an opportunity right. to do better, right? And for some people, they might say, look, I'm exhausted. I'm tired of having to help white people understand that they're being racist, or I'm tired of trying to help men understand that they did something misogynist. In that case, I would say, uh, is there an ally in your life that you could ask, right? So Mm -hmm. for me, could I go to one of my male friends and say, hey, could you talk to this person? I don't have the energy for it, but like, could you let them know that this isn't okay and that they need to make it right? I love that. And one of the things I also talk about is a lot of things that we call, or that people call cancel culture, and I really go in depth in this in one of the chapters, are people who have been called in and they ignore it. That's right. They ignore ignore it. it, They won't listen to people and they continue with this behavior. They have many opportunities to fix it and then they don't. And then they're held accountable and they lose their job and then they start crying about cancel culture. And it's like, but you had all these people telling you this was not okay. Eventually and you're going to get called out if you yeah. have to. Yeah, and then right. the only time you can apologize is when you're, jo- you're literally about to get fired. That's right. And so the thing is people have to take the time to have some compassion and some empathy for the people who are complaining because mm-hmm. it's very rare that people are complaining about something that doesn't have some pretty deep roots. Um, you know, and at the same time, it goes completely out of control. And interestingly, I feel like a lot of them are conservatives who are counseling people. I go through a bunch of examples of, of people like Kathy Griffin, you know, um, or uh, Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, these are people who like lost all their work for making a joke, right? I mean, Kathy Griffin made a joke about Donald Trump and, and Whoopi Goldberg made some joke about George Bush and lost all her work. Right. It was unemployable. And, and this was done by conservatives who claim that it's just the liberal snowflakes, right. Who are canceling right. everybody, but right. it's, it, it, we have, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's completely not political. Other times it is political, but I think we just have to try and see people as actual people, not just a little face on Twitter or a video that we saw and, and remember, like, there's a story behind this person. Can we create an opportunity for them to do better? Yeah. And, and that's they don't want to do better, then they, then they will suffer the consequences. That's right. That's right. But let's not necessarily focus on something they did 20 years ago. Like, people don't change. Let's not, you know. Right. Well, that's you know. a big one, especially for me, because I've changed so much. And, and everyone so, changes, I think, especially yeah. if you commit to putting in the work. Yeah. And I, so when I see people pulling up posts of somebody said something 10 years ago, or honestly, even five years ago, you can find things I wrote five years ago that I don't agree with because I'm a completely different person. Right. And so, you know, rather than going, this person said this, why don't you ask them what they actually think today? Mm -hmm. And, and if they don't, then they should, you know, explain, yeah, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. And I don't, you know, here's why I thought that. And it was, it was wrong. Uh, but, and I see this a lot with millennials where they pull up things that people said 20 years ago and act like they would have been different. It's like, why would you have been different? Right. What is so special about you that you would have been the only person in society that saw this? (laughs) You know, it's like, I I don't, it's just not, and I'm somebody who's always supported same-sex marriage Right. back when nobody supported it. Which was great for your faith. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I don't look at those people and go, I'm morally superior to them. Right. Right. And so, but for millennials now we'll say, well, how could anybody ever think that I would have been different? It's like, then I would ask you, why would you have been different? Mm -hmm. I happen to have been different. Right. And don't call call me woke. Right. I was raised around a lot of gay people. So I had a different perspective. If I hadn't been, would I have thought that? I don't know. Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. Cause I know a lot of good people who didn't believe that. So, um, Barack Obama didn't believe it. Right. Right. So it's, was not the position of the democratic party. And so I think it's like, you need to be aware that a lot of the way you are to the extent that you know, things is a product of the family you grew up in, the education that you got, the environment that you're in. If you had been moved, why do you think if you were raised in a little town in the South with conservative parents, you would think everything that you think right now? It's true that happens sometimes. I have some friends where it happened. They moved to New York City. But what for the people who stay behind, not that many of them will change their views. So I think that 
just trying to have some compassion for people and not put yourself above them because judgment also is so toxic. It is. And I, I talk a lot about that in the book. Every major religion tells you not to judge, right? Right. And I think that a lot of times in Christianity, people say, well, you know, Jesus said, don't, you know, judge others because you're going to, when you go to heaven, God's going to judge you. I I actually don't think that's what it is. I think it's because it's so toxic. Exactly. And it's, and that it makes your life miserable. Miserable. (laughs) Yeah. And because the minute you judge somebody and I, I can't believe I never saw this before because I was so judgmental. Oh my gosh. Mm. And I, you become a totally wrapped up in their story. You're completely entangled with them. You can't judge another person without getting completely entangled with them. Right. Versus being discerning and seeing it and being clear and saying, that's not okay. I'm going to say why that's not okay. And I'm going to do things to try to help other people see this isn't okay and they shouldn't be doing this, but I'm not going to sit in judgment with contempt and hatred and all these things, because now this person is living in my head. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm laying awake at three in the morning, fuming about them, right? Well, how does that help anybody? Yeah, How does that help a single person that they're harming? So you talk about this in the book as well. And and we're good friends with uh, Ken Blanchard and his wife, Margie. And, Mm -hmm. And Margie said this to me years ago. She said, people are always doing the best with their current state of awareness. Yes. And, and you, you say something similar to that also in the book. And, um, and I, I, and I love that because we never know what's, what's going on behind, you know, behind the eyes, right? Like what they're going through in their life. But at the same time, there's things that might happen that you can't just be like, oh, well, we don't know their whole story. So they get, they get a jail free card. And I want to give an example because there's some real world stuff going on. Right. And one of those things is someone recently uh, decided to send you a tweet um, about your appearance. Yes. Saying that you looked atrocious. Yeah. Um, the person couldn't seem to spell very well. Um, and, uh, I don't know if they work in TV, but they seem to know a lot more about how do you look good on television than, than you, I oh, guess. Many people do. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 And, and so here you are, Kirsten Powers, she's trying to practice grace. Mm-hmm. We don't know this woman's story, Right. Um, she's doing the best she can with what she currently knows, but where do we go from there? Like that moment happens and and there's moments like that in all different forms, right? Yeah. Where do we go from there to take us from this place where we've been to like this place where we all wish we could go because right now it doesn't feel like it's working. Yeah. Well, I think that you, I mean, in that case, I think it's a little different than the most of the things that happen in the public sphere, which I think involve much more serious issues. Sure. And so I do believe that we have accountability for people who, who have caused harm. It's just that accountability doesn't mean calling their employer to get them fired necessarily. It can in some extreme cases, but a lot of times it, it doesn't. And I think that, for example, the other thing that people need to understand when they get somebody fired that's just capitalism. They, they think it's like, oh, I've done something righteous. No, 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 no. That's capitalism right. where we're disposable and the employers don't care. And they just want to get rid of somebody regardless of what it, somebody who's maybe worked for them for 20 years. They don't even care ass. because right. that's how we operate in this country where, right. where employers don't have any obligation to their employees. So they throw this person overboard to avoid a PR nightmare. And people are like, oh, this is so great for the cause. It's like, for what cause? Like, I don't understand. Like this uh, is just capitalism out of control. Yeah. So it, I say like in that case, the employer should take interest in helping their employee. The employer should say, we're going to yep. suspend you, or we're going to dock your pay and you're going to have to do this training. And we're going to have a conversation in our, and you're going to create healing in our environment and help them become a better person rather right. than ostracizing them. I will say in some cases, that's not it. Sometimes people do things that are too much and, they definitely, that's, that is accountability. And so right. I would say in the case of, oh, and so just to be, to finish that out, it's, it's looking at that person and saying, yes, you're a person who's doing the best that you can, but you've caused harm Yeah. and we're not going to demonize you. We're not going to say you're rotten to the core. We're not going to say you're a horrible person that we have contempt for. We're going to say you're a person doing the best you can, but this isn't okay. 
And so right. let's talk about how you can learn that and how you can do better. I love um, that. Yeah. And so in my case with, with, with like that woman, that is, I don't think, oh, this is a horrible person. I can't believe she did that. I think this is a person who has internalized misogyny as so many people do. We all have it. Yeah. And, uh, and she doesn't real. I don't think she realizes it. Mm. And so that's why I think I just retweeted it. And I said, atrocious, right? Because usually when I do that, the person apologizes. And, and, but, but, and Kirsten today though, may re- responded maybe different than Kirsten five years ago. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, probably. I probably, I might've thought that what a jerk or How whatever. You? I didn't yeah. think that. I just thought this person doesn't see right. that they have internalized misogyny, that they think that I have an obligation to have blonde hair. Right. Right. And it's, and they're very angry about my brown hair. Right. <laughs> and so as so many people are, because I right. went back to my natural color during um, COVID and so, but that's just internalized misogyny because she's not sending that to David Axelrod. So right. it's not, it, you know, she's not sending it to any of my male colleagues. So there's an expectation that I'm not only supposed to be informed and informative, I'm also supposed to look like, you know, a movie star. Mm. And so, but I doubt she realizes that because that's what we've been taught. And so you so have to learn that. And so I don't know if she did apologize because I hardly go on Twitter, but almost always the person says, I shouldn't, I'm sorry. That wasn't okay. You know, and, and, um, that, kind of, and that kind of grace helps, helps, hopefully helps her grow too. Right. And well, right. Exactly. And I, okay. use, I use an example in there of Sarah Silverman yes, um, I love that responding story. to a guy who wrote some really misogynist stuff to her. And, you know, Sarah Silverman's so funny and so smart. She could have just whipped out some great comeback and humiliated this guy, right? Um, And instead, she went on his timeline and she saw that he'd really been suffering. He had back pain. I think, you know, he had problems, other problems in his life. He didn't have enough money to get treatment. And she just reached out and was like, hey, I I see you're suffering and you're struggling. And, And she started this back and forth with him. And then she asked her followers to help him. And he raised money with a GoFundMe to be able to see a doctor. And, and he ended up writing something just, he was so sorry. And he, you know, couldn't believe how wonderful everyone was being to him. And so we do, we do have opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. We do have opportunities to see the best in people or have compassion for where they're coming from. Uh, Sometimes you do that and you'll get a horrible response back. And you know, that, that happens. I don't want to say that every time it works out that way, but You know, I, I used another example of Mary Beard, who's a feminist professor, and you know, she she wrote an amazing book on misogyny, and she gets these horrible misogynist attacks, and she retweeted one of them, and the guy ended up apologizing to her, and they ended up going to lunch, and she now writes recommendations for him. It, it doesn't, it can be an opportunity. Yeah, well, and and so. There's a couple sentences here that I pulled from the book. And, and I mean, literally from the start of the book, it's just like, this is so freaking beautiful. Aww. And it starts with, you know, grace is what makes human coexistence possible. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, you know, yeah. uh, grace is what lets us stumble, fall, get back up and try again. I just think it's grace is giving other people space to not be you. That's I mean, so like, important. I mean, it yeah. gives me goosebumps as I say it right now, like yeah. that is such a beautiful statement. Grace is the original self-care. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. I mean, that's a really important thing to talk about too. It's learning to have grace for yourself, which in yes. many ways can be the hardest thing. And if you can't have grace for yourself, you're not going to have grace for other people. That's right. So, you know, sometimes you hear people say things like, and I think I might even used to say this about myself, like, yeah, I'm really hard on other people, but I'm just as hard on myself. It's like, Ooh, that's a red flag. um why are you so hard on yourself yeah like so it's like so it's okay to be really hard on other people like how about we don't be hard on anybody that's right yeah (laughs) how How about about we be nice to ourselves a little kindness to yourself and other people for ourselves a little grace (laughs) and cut ourselves a little slack yeah Uh, but i was so hard on myself and and then i projected that out onto other people it's like you know i'm miserable all the time and i'm anxious and i have chronic fatigue and i'm still work 14 hours a day and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just like, why are you doing that? What is wrong with you? And so it's, I really did learn how to have grace for myself to cut myself slack. I have to say, I went from having the worst inner critic that just never took a day off uh, to really not having one. It, 
That's Honestly, incredible. I cannot remember the last time I thought something horrible about to myself, like said, you, you need to do this or you do whatever. And if it happens, it's so discordant. I, I just like, what? Okay. I, so, I even... so that is something I believe every person in the world would love to have in their life. And so in, in, I know we're, we're running out of time a little bit. So in terms of how do we get there? You know, what are things, um, you know, some practical things like you talked about boundaries too, like things you say yes to and things you say no to. Right. So what are some of these techniques maybe that you've used? uh, Maybe that the listeners might want to try out, you know, everyone's different, of course, but, and you said you've tried everything. So, uh, (laughs) well, I had a dog about my chronic health issues in the book, which I know a little bit about, because I think I, when I first met you, I was probably still suffering from them. Absolutely. Uh, I was sleeping 14 hours a day, at least exhausted. I'd wake up. I'd just be exhausted. I couldn't do anything. Uh, I had fibromyalgia. I had pain all over my body. I was anxious. And for me, it ended up being psychosomatic. I'm not saying it is for everybody. It was psychosomatic. And I went to a place called onsite in Tennessee and I did an intensive seven week program called the living center program. And when I got home from that three weeks later, all of that was gone. It's incredible because I, what we discovered was I had unprocessed grief around my father's death. He died suddenly of a heart attack when he was Mm. 61 and I was in my mid thirties. Gotcha. And uh, it just destroyed me. And then my grandmother died the following year. And then my stepfather got cancer and then he died. My mom's best friend died. It was just really hard, especially when you're in your thirties. Yep. And so I, I, and uh, I wasn't with my grandma when she died and I just couldn't get over it. And so I, I dealt with that. And so for me, dealing with trauma was really important, but boundaries were incredibly important learning about how, you don't actually have to take on every problem in the world. I really was a person, I'm an empath. And so every time anything happened, I would just be consuming all the information and getting upset and talking about it. And I was like, why don't you just, you, I, I'm a columnist. Like I can write a column about it. I can do something. I can use my platform to address this. Why don't I, rather than taking everything on and acting like sitting around freaking out about it is helping anybody. Why don't I just say, okay, I see that. And I'm going to do something about it. How am I going to set up boundaries with other people? Uh, so I'm not, you know, if you have somebody in your life who holds a belief that you find problematic, how do you create boundaries around how you discuss things? Mm-hmm. That's very important. Whether you're going to discuss them, if you discuss them, what are the boundaries that are in place? Uh, I think boundaries actually are a part of non-judgment. How do you put yep. that boundary around you of like somebody else gets to not be you without being judged? Yep. Um uh, really unlearning dualistic thinking, which that was the spiritual side for me, really through st- reading a lot of Richard Rohr and spending time with Richard Rohr, uh, really realizing, and then Father Martin, who's my spiritual director, really unpacking that of, oh, like it's everything, it's not two choices for everything. Right. There's lots of different ways to see things. And I have a real need to demonize people. And so to be aware of that was really, really important. And so the first step is, as always, just being conscious of just being conscious that I want to be different and I want to do different. I want to be different for myself and I want to be different because I care about this country. Right. We are on a path of destruction, basically. And how do I pour grace into this world and pour goodness into this world? rather than adding to the problem and rather than becoming what I oppose. So I think that those are very practical tips, understanding brain science, as we were talking about before, becoming aware that our brains are working against us. Uh, Meditation was a huge part of it. I I really helped me be grounded to having a meditation and and I do centering prayer and I I do transcendental meditation. I, I meditate a lot. And so I think those things also really help you get grounded and taking care of yourself. Yeah. Not getting overtired, not, uh, Oh, I'm forgetting one of the biggest ones. I mean, the first thing I did was I stopped watching TV news, which I know is a crazy thing to say for somebody who works at CNN, (laughs) but I really watched very little of it uh, because it's very activating. If you're, Oh gosh. Yeah. It's very activating. You're not a sensitive person, but if you're a sensitive person and empath, you've got to be really careful about that because it is very activating. So I, I designed to to be right. Yeah. And I try to get my information through uh, reading because that's a little less activating to me. Right. And so I put a limit on how much media I would consume. I put a limit on, well, I went cold Turkey on social media and then I, 
I allowed a little bit back in, but I put a limit on it. I pay a lot of attention to what I'm thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. Am I feeling activated, judgmental, or am I just, you know, is this information informing me, making me a better citizen, making me a a more informed person? So I think that, yeah, I I want it to be very practical. I want people to be able to walk away from this and say, here are some things. And, And the few people who have had an advanced copy and read it have told me that it's making them think differently when they go on Twitter or uh, when they think about the decisions that they're making. And so that that's really my goal. And, and, and it does that. And, and, you know, from the most basic tenet of do unto others, you know, uh, to the science and the under awareness and all these other things that you cover so much in the book. And like I said earlier on, like the multifaceted approach, like in pulling information in different um you know, analyzing it from these different perspectives and bring it all together into a cohesive message, I think is what makes it so brilliant. And I also think it, what takes the book out of politics, this is not a political book to me. Right. This is, this is, I hope every single person in this country reads this book oh, and because it, it, it changes what matters, right? It changes. It's, it, it can cause, I think, an identity shift for people. Oh, well, I hope so. Also, we can go a little bit longer if you need to. Oh, okay. I, I well, think I, probably around two is when I, I have to stop. Okay, I can talk um, with you for hours. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, that that is my hope, is that it's something that will actually really change people's lives. And it was it was a hard book to write. It was a very hard book to write because there's there are a lot of misconceptions about grace. And so when people hear grace, they think, oh, be a doormat or let people push you around or don't right. ever speak up about anything. And it's the opposite. Actually, right. having grace makes me so much more clear about what I want to say. Mm. And so it's, it is just, it is, it is much more about what's happening inside than what's happening outside. And it's not, so there are lots of people who look like they're being very grace filled, but we don't know what's going on inside of them. Um, being right. polite is not grace. Being nice is not grace. It's an absolute inner orientation about how you see other people and you see the world. Yeah. And, and for you again, back to, uh, you know, I have, you know, I've seen this so many times, uh, cause you know, me and my wife, Patty, we're obviously we're friends, but we're all also huge fans. And, yeah. um, it's like, Oh God, here she goes again with Senator Santorum. Okay. What's this one <laughs> going to be about? Right. <laughs> you know, my buddy. And, uh, and, and it's about topics that are, that are massive, you know, yeah. immigration, um, the right to a woman's body, yeah. you know, all these topics that you're covering, um, in, in a time when, you know, as I can remember, I can't remember being this divided ever before and, and not um, in our lifetime, not yeah, in our lifetime. Right. Once in history, but yeah. And, you know, and not to be, played, I think we have a past president that just played on all of our worst angels to use it, you know, to, to create this thing he wanted to create. And, and he was good at that. Um, but just to think of you going out there on a nightly basis on public television, on national television, t- having these conversations about things that really do matter and mm-hmm. really do affect people's lives and, uh, to the depths and, you know, as deep as you can go. Um, I don't know. First, I just want to say thank you. And, <laughs> and because you're a warrior for grace, you know, and the fact that you can do that now from a place of grace inside of you, it's going to, obviously you've already experienced this. You're going to be able to even ex- bring more grace into the world through mm-hmm. these conversations. And, and all the other stuff to me is, it's just head stuff, right? It's just this, but you're connecting to a heart thing now, yes. you know? And, and if someone wants to argue that grace is a bad thing, that we don't need more heart right now, like that's, that's a tough argument, I think. Yeah. They can only argue it if they don't understand grace and it's not really their fault if they don't understand grace. Cause I don't think it's really ever been unpacked. It's, it's usually in this very Christian and I do use the Christian formulation of unmerited favor, right? but you don't really see it practiced that much. And mm-hmm. you see people kind of talking about it and wanting it for themselves, right? It's invoked like, well, give me grace or give that person grace. And it's like, but what about you giving grace? Are you giving grace or why are you so obsessed with other people giving grace? And so I think there's a, there is a natural under, misunderstanding about it. And so then people have a reflexive response to that. And because we're all so binary, even the things I was saying about social media, somebody might say, 
but social media is the only place that I can, you know, marginalized groups can go to express themselves. Yes, that's exactly true. And sometimes it gets out of control. So social media is a wonderful, I mean, I can't even imagine what our world would be like without yeah. it when it comes to Black Lives Matter or Me Too, right? right. I mean, you just changed the world. Yep. So yep. sometimes it's, it's this incredible revolutionary tool and it changes the world for the better. And sometimes it's horrible and it's toxic. So it's both things. And so, you you know, how do we use this for good and, and not add to the harm? And it's not an either or, it's a both and. And so, but I think that a lot of times people just immediately go to, oh, here comes somebody saying we should just look the other way and we should all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and go back That's to when you. we used to get along. <laughs> yeah, go back to when we used to get along. And I, I talk about this in the book. That's why I don't like unity. I don't like the idea of unity, which Joe Biden talks about. And I say in the book, I think he's actually saying he means grace, but he's saying unity Mm -hmm. because unity implies that we're all going to come together and we're not. No. And that's okay. We don't, we're not going to paper over our differences and pretend they don't exist. That's not where unity implies that you now have come together and said, this is what I think America should be like. Right. And do we think that the different sides actually want the same country? Because I don't. Right. So they're just not united. You can't even say they're united about wanting the country to be a certain way. They're not. And so, but you don't have to have unity. It's a false Mm -hmm. idea. Because when we had unity in the past, when people point to it, I mean, just the most recently, people were saying, oh, we had so much unity on 9-11. It's like, and what did that get us? Right. We invaded Iraq. Iraq. The 20 I mean, what, what, yeah. Why is that a good thing? Mm-hmm. I, that's not, everybody was unified in scapegoating Muslims. Right. I, I mean, what? That's, we have to think about these things. That's not, unity in itself is not a goal. Unity got us having a majority of people thinking that gay people shouldn't get married. Unity had us having a majority of people for a long time thinking, you know, all sorts of sexist things about women. Right. Thinking that it's okay to discriminate against them. Thinking that, you know, unity got in my twenties there, like the entire Congress was white men. (laughs) Right. And everybody thought that was fine. So of course they were unified. It's not. And so we, I I don't like the idea of unity. I like the idea of grace where it says we have these differences. I don't have to change my mind about what I believe. I'm not going to say that things are better than they are. I am going to be outraged, yeah. um, but I'm going to interact with people in a way that sees their humanity, sees the divine spark in them. And that maybe even can change their mind, right? right? Maybe we can actually talk to people in a way that changes their mind. And I have a whole chapter on that, on the social science of how people actually change their mind. And surprise, surprise, it's not by calling them homophobes. I tried, I know, doesn't work. <laughs> um, and so it's, yeah, it, and it's, it's sharing stories. And it's, it's uh, I, I talk about this new way of basically doing canvassing. It's called deep canvassing, mm-hmm. where you go out and rather than saying, here's all the reasons that you should believe this. Here's all the reasons you should support transgender rights. You have a transgender person who actually goes out and says, hey, let's talk about this and shares their story and listens to the other person's stories. And what they found was they were able to convert people. They were able to actually get them to support their view uh, in a way that you just don't get when you just set this, you know, just attack people with data and facts because immediately they go, well, where are those facts from? Is that, right. the, is that the fake news? If they're right. on the right and if yeah. it's on the left, it's like, is that the right-wing media? Uh, they just don't, it's it's ironic now that people, facts don't change people's minds. Yeah, because what's the truth, like you said, but someone's yeah. someone's being or a story. Someone's it, actual it, personal experience where they say, um, you know, my parents are undocumented immigrants or, you know, my I have a friend who's an undocumented immigrant. Can I tell you about what happened to him? Or that kind of, those are the kinds of things. Or also- um, calling people kind of to their higher selves. Yep. So say you have, say you're a, a Democrat and, or even a Republican, but who doesn't like Trump and your mother supports Trump and is saying things about undocumented immigrants rather than laying into her and saying, that's so racist. That's so wrong. I can't believe this. Da, 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 appeal to what, why this is upsetting to you. So you could say, you know, mom, you raised me to care about other people and to, and I see you caring for other people. I see you're a good neighbor and you volunteer at the church and you just really taught me to love other people. And so I can't reconcile 
what you're saying with the woman that I know who yeah, loves I love people, that. right? Yes. To remind them of who they are. Yeah. And to put it in the context of their values of versus coming at them with condescension and contempt and which let's just all sit here for a second and think about how many times we've changed our minds when somebody's condescended to us or been contemptuous. Yes. Zero. Zero. Right. right. It just, right. it doesn't work. Shaming. It doesn't work because I'm again, so glad shaming, you shared that. Yeah. Shaming causes your brain to make itself safe. Your brain wants to be safe. So when someone right. shames you, you start being defensive and protecting yourself and it's too painful. I'm so glad you shared that because we all know that there's been even within families, yes, you know, this with Trump and there, like, there's been these conversations, there's been relationships completely severed. Right. But, yeah. but it doesn't have to be that way necessarily. We can try another way. Right. Yeah. And, and um, so listen, I know that you're busy and you got to go uh, again. I just want to say, thank you. This book really does give me hope. And uh-huh. and I, the reason why I want everyone to read it, number one, because, because you wrote it and I want it to be a huge success, but honestly, I think it's going to change people individually. It's going to help them grow. And we're all still learning and we have a lot to learn from one another. It opens us up to be more open-minded and open-hearted, I think. Um, and also I think it realigns us to like, what does really matter? Does it matter if I'm red or blue or does it matter if I can come to people with an open heart with grace and to try to learn and connect and, and get back to, I think what it is we're supposed to be doing as human beings in the first place. So um, for all you listen, uh, for all you <laughs> listeners out there, um, the book is called Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. And it comes out November 2nd. Please grab a copy today and follow Kirsten Powers at Kirsten Powers on social media. Kirsten, I love you so much. Thank love you for you. everything. I miss Thank you. you. And uh, tell Robert, we said hello. Take care. That was great. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation that I had. Uh, promise me one thing that you're going to go out and you're going to buy this book. It's one of the few books I've actually sat down and read in one sitting in quite a while. And I loved every bit of it. So go get yourself a copy, share it with people. I think it's such a great way for us to heal this hole and this wound that we've had from all the separation and division in our country. Um, I don't care what party you are. It doesn't matter. It's uh, get it because you're human and we all could use a little more grace. <laughs>